You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. All right, well, the Lord has given us faithfully yet again another opportunity, another moment here to set our hearts and our minds on the good news of Jesus Christ, and so we want to give our attention and make it a good one. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text this morning, Revelation 14, verses 6 through 8. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 8. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the human brain is an ancient marvel in 10,000 or so years, unimproved upon. And yet it is an incredible machine. I learned just this week that the average person will think 70 thoughts, 70,000 thoughts every day. Maybe I think 70 thoughts a day. The average person thinks 70,000 thoughts a day. That's about 3,000 thoughts per hour. If you got up at the normal time this morning, that means that already you have thought somewhere around 10,000 thoughts. And yet what is so amazing on top of that is that I'm willing to bet that not one of those thoughts included the realization that you were thinking 10,000 thoughts. It just happens. It's easy to overlook this marvel of your brain is constantly working and you never give it, weirdly, even a thought. Well, you know, I see a lot of similarities between that and the gospel because the good news of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is a living Savior, is every day, every hour, every moment declaring to you Tens of thousands of thoughts of good news and gladness and grace. And you and I often, admittedly, and we can admit this cheerfully because it shows off the extravagance of God's good news and his ministry to us, very seldom give that any thought. It just happens. It's constantly at work by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. For those of us who trust in Christ, The gospel is continually ministering to us. It is amazing, and yet it is overlooked. That's a reminder to us that as fallen people, we need to return over and over again to the profound and yet basic and amazing and overlooked reality that is the gospel. We want to do that this morning by looking in this text for three truths that we find what I think clearly displayed for us there. And they are truths about the gospel. I hope that you will take these truths and write them down if you're taking notes or on your phone, type them down and carry them with you so that you can reflect upon them again. This week in community group life, important part, essential part of life in our church. That's where we work out in practical daily living the important truths that we're hearing on Sunday morning from the word of God. And this week we will be thinking in particular again and again, as always, about the gospel. Well, here's the first truth about the gospel that we find in this wonderful text, and it is that the gospel offers good news 
to the world. If you've been tracking along as we have been preaching through the book of Revelation over recent weeks, we saw a lot of dark scenes in the vision that John is laying out. In particular, we saw a dragon who is the devil himself raise up two beasts from the land and the sea and seek to work woe Christ's people in the world in this time that we're calling the the Great Tribulation. But then, in the midst of all of that darkness and smoldering hatred and and burning anger of of the beasts and their ultimate king, the devil, Jesus came on the scene. Jesus pictured as the Lamb of God with the 144,000 symbolizing all the elect that he has called to himself are there standing on Mount Zion, high lifted up, not the actual mount, but showing the difference between the dragon, the devil, and Jesus' supremacy, and he is on the scene. Well, now we get to hear from some angels who are also there accompanying them and to hear this incredible good news yet again from another passage of Scripture, perhaps even one that we would not expect to find this. This first truth, the gospel offers good news to the world, is seen in verse 6. He says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. That's probably the space between what is pictured as heaven, the the very presence of God the Father, and the earth, in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This verse here alone gives us an opportunity to stop and really appreciate the fact that the good news of Jesus Christ has come to us. This is what we all as Christians have in common. We have lots of differences. We have lots of different interests and, and, and lives and jobs and homes and streets and backgrounds and family. But one of the many things that holds us together is the fact that the gospel has actually come to us. This is how you and I have been saved or converted. This is the way that we've been redeemed from our sin, our sin being paid for by Christ and being transferred into his kingdom where we belong to him and he cares for us. We are forgiven and made glad by him in his grace. We have that in common. It is that we came to Christ as everyone does because the gospel was offered to us. This is another one of those brain thoughts that flies through our hearts spiritually that it's easy to overlook, and we want to keep going back to them. A lot of the Christian life is going back to the basics. It's being reminded of the basic truths of our faith, which was delivered to us, the saints, once and for all. And here's one of those truths. Revel in this, savor it for a moment here, that the good news of Jesus Christ has actually come to you. It has actually been offered to you. But not only that, it was not only offered as as a kind of option or possibility among many others, but instead it was accompanied for us who belong to Christ by God's supernatural working to open the doors of our hearts so that the gospel would come in. This is an incredible incredible reality that we know to be true because of what Jesus has done for us. 
the good news of Jesus Christ has come to us. And it has given us each a testimony. And again, some of the, the details of our testimonies are different, but the general story is always the same. It's basically this, and this is the Christian message from beginning to end in a nutshell, is that every single person in the universe has been born in darkness, in sin, as the Bible says. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, we sinned with them, and that sin was passed down to us as our very own, and as a result of that, we continued being actual sinners in our lives. Because of our sin, God's wrath was hanging over us. We had not obeyed God's law. God's law had, had brought to us bad news about the good truth of who God is. It's good truth about who God is because it's declared to us, like in the Ten Commandments and other places where God is revealed, just exactly who this God is and what he expects of us. That's a good thing. But for sinners like us, what does it bring? It brings bad news. Because it reminds us that we cannot save ourselves. We have not saved ourselves. And in fact, we have done nothing to merit the kind of love that we ultimately should desire when our hearts are right with God. But the good news of Jesus Christ then comes to us. As we realize this bad news of the law, which says we must do these things and be these ways, and if we do, then the promise will be given to us that we will live The bad news tells us this, we realize by grace we haven't done those things and the promise does not belong to us. We don't get to live. In fact, we die. But here comes the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the comforting pillow that we lay our head upon when it's aching because the law has had its way with us, pounding upon us the reality of our sin. And that's why we often say in our church that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is good news with no mixture of bad news whatsoever. The good news of Jesus Christ does not come to us with bad news. It doesn't come to us with more demands. It doesn't give us a list of commands or or evangelical duties to do, a certain way of praying or a certain way of thinking. And if you'll just get on board, then you can become a Christian But rather, the good news of Jesus Christ has no mixture of bad news whatsoever. It is all good news, and it is all about Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners like us. Every Christian has the same testimony. Lost in sin, by grace through the law came to know that you were in sin. The gospel was announced or preached to you, and God opened the door of your heart so that the gospel would come in. The gospel, therefore, comes in because it's a message. It's a message that you hear with faith, and it transforms your heart. This is the basic of the gospel. This is what we want to keep remembering and refreshing in our own hearts and minds. We need this clear distinction all the time between the law's voice of do this and live and the gospel's voice done or live. And now because of grace, you can do this. You can respond to God's call to obedience by obeying because of what he has done for you. This is the good news. We see it right here in verse 6. This angel flying in mid-heaven has an eternal good news to preach. Does not have an eternal good news to live. It's an eternal good news to preach. 
It's an announcement of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us, and it is preached to us. And then by grace, our ears are opened, we hear it, and it changes our lives. The word that is used here in many other places in the New Testament for gospel is the word euangelion. It's a Greek word. It's the same word that's used here, and it means good news. In fact, this is the word that Paul used to talk about the gospel. Uh, Every time he talks about it, he refers to it as this kind of good news, the message of Jesus Christ, the ultimate message of redemption by faith in him. This term, euangelion, or good news or gospel, is actually a word that that Paul and others co-opted from the culture previously because this wasn't a new word that they invented. It's one that they borrowed and then redefined forevermore under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that word is one that was formerly, before them, used as a declaration of victory by a king. It was the decree or announcement that victory had been won and this message would be sent everywhere, this euangelion. If you think about that word a little bit, even, even, even just think with our, with our kind of English minds about that word, you, you probably can see inside of there another word. It's another word in Greek that comes through in English and it is simply the word for angel. Do you hear it in there? Euangelion. Angel. That's the word for messenger. It's another reminder of what the gospel is. Even buried inside the word is the reminder that the gospel is an announcement. It is a sermon. It is a proclamation. It is a decree from the king of ultimate victory on behalf of his people that is intended to make them glad. You see, these basics are easy to overlook, and we are in desperate need to soak up the the life-giving water that comes from the gospel, just as we are doing right here, right now. As we look at just this first verse, thinking of this first truth that the gospel offers good news to the world, I want you to be reminded of two important truths. First, you've just heard that the gospel is a message to be preached and a message to hear, but also second that it is a genuine offer to the world. Notice what it says in verse 6, this angel flying in mid-heaven had an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. And if there's any mistaking what that means, John goes on to explain saying, every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people group, every every person group around the world is the destination of the gospel that the good news of Jesus Christ is to be preached to all different kinds of people so that all different kinds of people, not without exception, not that every one single person will be saved, we know that's not true, but rather without distinction, that every kind of person will be saved. This is to maximize God's glory, that heaven will be filled with the nations of the world who despite all of their many differences have been brought together around the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what magnifies God's glory. But also God's glory is magnified by the preaching of the gospel around the world because many people, perhaps even most people, reject him. But in God's economy, even this brings him great glory 
because he, in in an incredible act of kindness, has preached the gospel to the whole world. Missionaries are going around the world. People like we heard this morning, Martin Luther and others have translated the Bible into all different kinds of languages so the gospel can go to them. Therefore, even those who reject him will ultimately give God glory even on a day of judgment because he has given this offer to the world. But even beyond that, he's maximizing his glory by sending the gospel into the world because the gospel exists not only for his glory, but also for the sinner's joy. It is for the glory of God and the sinner's joy that this angel has an eternal gospel to preach all around the world. This is an amazing, amazing, world-changing reality. I know that it is easy to look at the world and think that not much good is happening or to think that maybe God's not doing very much because we see a whole lot of trouble and not a lot of help. We see a whole lot of hardship and not a lot of hope or gladness. But we can be assured that in the unseen, God is at work and he is doing this very thing. He is spending if we can put it that way, his energies to send an eternal gospel around the world so that he would draw all different kinds of people to himself, not just to be saved and avoid the penalties of hell, but to be saved and enjoy the delights of his presence, to be made truly, finally, and forevermore glad in him. The ultimate longing of the human heart is gladness. It's why everyone in the world is doing everything that they're doing. I've often told my children, yes, money can buy happiness. It does. That's why the whole world is spending it, to try to get some kind of happiness. But the good news of Jesus Christ, because it's good news, is that when you hear the truth of what he has done for sinners like us and by grace come to him in faith, you are made glad, you are made happy, and finally will be made happy in a way unlike anything else could make you because Jesus Christ is that kind of God. Well, what that means for us today as Christians here in this room who have this vision, it's growing, we're being reminded of it, we want to see the gospel go into the world, is that we want to join God and his angel in preaching this eternal gospel everywhere that we can. Because we know that he will save his people from their sins. We know that he will get the victory. That's what the announcement is all about. And we want to join him in the glad-making work of spreading good news far and wide. So at the end of this first verse, here's the, the use or application for us. Let's write this down. We're reminded here of of actually uh, a long time ago, old dead guy named St. Benedict, who was a part of a group of Benedictine monks, and they had a certain motto within their their group that I think is actually helpful to us today. It's the Latin, ora et labora, and it means to pray and to work. This is what they were focused on, praying for God to work and then working with the gifts God had given them for his glory. This is the kind of application that we should take away when we see this. You hear in the word of God about the gospel going around the world as someone to whom it has already come to, then pray. Pray big, bright, 
prayers about the gospel going forth. Let's be done with these measly, dark, little, weak prayers that aren't going to accomplish anything, and let's start praying big, bright prayers about the big, bright, good news that Jesus Christ has brought into the world. And then we also should be looking at how we as a church and as individuals can work, can give our energy, our time, our focus on making this good news known to the gladness of the world in the gospel. There is nothing better than that. Absolutely nothing. If you look for something better in the world, you simply will not find it. There's nothing better than the good news. Well, that brings us to the second point. It fits right in with the first. And it is this, that just as the gospel offers good news to the world, listen, the gospel offers in particular true kindness to the world. Let me read this verse, verse 7. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. When you hear those words, you might be thinking, why would he phrase that point that way? That the gospel offers true kindness to the world. Well, that is because God's kindness is the incredible blazing center of the eternal gospel that goes out into the world. See what the voice of the gospel angel declares. Fear God. Give him glory. Worship him. All of scripture, all of scripture, including this, is intended, at least in part, and I think in major part, for the gladness of those who read it. It is so that you will hear the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. That's all of Scripture. So so we could even say, if I come to the Word of God, any part of the Word of God, and I am not seeking out in the understanding of the gospel story and hearing from the Word of God, the gladness that he offers to me, I am reading it wrong. Because on every page of Scripture, there is the underlying reality that Jesus Christ has come into the world to make his people glad. Therefore, when you read, and I know it's been harder in the book of Revelation because we see so many dark and smoky scenes and they're kind of terrifying and unnerving. But even in Revelation... And we've tried to display this as best we can as a church over these nine months so far that we've been here, is that every verse, no matter how dark, no matter how smoky, no matter how threatening, no matter how unnerving, they're all written with the central intention of making you glad, of showing you the utter kindness of God toward a fallen world, what a righteous, glorious, holy God chooses to do in the midst of an unholy, fallen, broken world. And in particular, what he has chosen to do for you. In particular, he came to you. 
He snatched you into his gracious hands, and he promised you that he will never let you go. He took you, and he has announced these incredible actions, realities, joys to you. It's incredible. I spent about two hours at a skate park the other day talking with a guy who had tons of questions, was really stuck in his unbelief, and that was abundantly clear to him eventually. And we were able to talk about what is the real picture of God at work saving people in the world? It is about, and we've said something like this before, imagine a group of people in a field which was nearby where we were sitting, and imagine that this huge sea of people are all running away from God, and they're only looking back to say, I will never worship you. I don't want to be like you. If this is the way, if this is the way you act in the world, if this is what you choose to do with your world, if this is what you did in the Garden of Eden, I don't want to worship you. I will never come to you. And they're all running away. And then what does he do? He starts calling out names. As the gospel goes preached over the whole crowd in the midst of it, he starts calling out names. He's reading names from his book, which we've already talked about. He's reading the names of people that are written in his book from the foundation of the world, and when he calls their name, what do they do? They turn around, and they start sprinting as fast as they can toward him. They start running into his arms because when he calls their name, suddenly their eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped and their hearts are made alive and they are assured that this God is the God of grace, that this is the God of ultimate kindness and he has chosen to be kind to me. And that kindness, that kindness is irresistible. It's the kind of kindness that lifts people like you, you think about in a hot air balloon when you pull the handle and you hear the rush of hot air into the balloon and it fills and it starts to lift. It's the same kind of thing. It's, it's the hot air of the gospel in your heart that, that swells you and you begin to lift and, and look up to heaven in visions of gladness and joy and gratitude because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the picture. Have you known human beings that were kind, exceptionally kind? Maybe a few. I can think of one. Uh, there's a man named Max, quite a bit older than I am, great mentor. He, he excels in kindness. Almost every day he sends me a text with some scripture picture, reminder of the truth, ultimate kindness. I spent some time working for Max with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it was one of the things that I noticed, uh, you know, that's early on in my life, or really early on in my Christian life, I hadn't experienced much of that, where this person is so utterly kind to me, I don't want to do anything but please him. I want to do a good job, not because I'm getting paid I want to do a good job, not because if I don't, I'm going to get in trouble. 
I want to do a good job because Max is kind to me. Now, multiply that exponentially and think about the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that makes these realities realities. Listen to them. Verse 7. This is why I say that the gospel is offering true kindness because these three things and many others only happen because God is kind. They cannot happen because of commands. Commands don't make you do these three things. Threats and punishments and penalties, they don't make you do these three things. Only kindness can get this job done. Fear. We thought about in the first hour during ABF, there's different definitions of fear, aren't there? Sometimes we fear, we're groveling on the ground in front of someone, we're really afraid of them, we're, 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 we're trying to block their, their swings at us. That, that's a different kind of fear. That's not this kind of fear. This is a reverential awe of God and his goodness. It is, it is a fear of God, not because... He's a punisher. It's a fear of God because he's kind, because he's a savior. Fear God. Give him glory. There's another one of these words we were saying, like earlier, use like a lot of like the Greek words and stuff so you can look smart. I'm not smart. I just have a program on my computer that tells me what the words are. Here's one, doxa. Doxa is a word that means weight. Now think about what this means. It means that the people who are running across the field are transformed and suddenly the person that they thought was light and meaningless is now weighty. That's what it means to glorify God. It means to give him weight. He's, he's substantial. He's valuable. You, you're treasuring him. That only happens by kindness. You can't command someone into glorifying you. It only happens by kindness. And then finally, look at the last one. Worship him who made heaven and earth. This is a radical transformation in the human heart. The human heart is so far away from God, so opposed in enmity with him. It has to be radically renovated in order for anyone to worship him like this, to recognize that he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, that he is the giver of all good things. And that he is the king of kindness and gladness. This is the transformation that has happened. And it all comes because of God's kindness. You heard it a little bit in that public reading of scripture, which is always by intention. In Romans 2, did you catch? I tried to slow down when I was reading it to catch the real heart of that passage. Paul was talking to some people who were used to criticizing other people about the the way they lived or what they did, though they did all the same kinds of things. And do you notice how he lovingly rebukes them? What does he draw their attention to? Why does he say, you know, you shouldn't criticize people like that. You shouldn't be arrogant like that. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? The riches of his restraint of your sin to keep you under control, the riches of his patience, not knowing, he says, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? This is a truth that's easy to overlook. 
But it is a truth that is preached to you and to me 70,000 times a day in the one word, gospel. If you know Jesus Christ, his overarching disposition toward you is kindness. Ever kind, forevermore. Therefore, for those of us who have been transformed by God's kindness, it is also easy to overlook our potential by his grace to be extensions of his kindness. We do this, and this is the application for us, is to think carefully, how can you, how can I, how can we be an extension of God's gospel kindness by spreading the gladness of God in the gospel? How can we put on display the beauty of God's kindness? That's the real question, by making much of his good news. I have been so impressed, one, because I'm sort of like a fanboy of some preachers, of R.C. Sproul, who, who is a, um, a preacher who lived from 1939 and just died recently in 2017, Presbyterian uh, pastor, preacher, and author. I've often watched on, on YouTube and other places his preaching and one of the things that you capture about him is that he is an immensely kind person. And he is an immensely kind person because his heart has been set upon the kindness of God. In fact, do you know what his tombstone reads? It'll be up on the screen and you can see it. On his tombstone, it says, a kind man redeemed by a kinder savior. One of the things that really stood out to me as a pastor about Sproul as well on the topic of kindness is I was just sort of shocked and enamored for days and to this day that Sundays after he would preach and he would go home to Vesta, his wife, and he would, he would ask her a question about his preaching. I've asked my Vesta lots of questions about my preaching, but I have not often asked this. He didn't go home and ask her, was I compelling? Was I effective? Was I winsome? Was I persuasive, passionate, and bold? You know what he said? You probably know if you're on Instagram, because I put it on Instagram. He said, was I kind? That's what he wanted his preaching to be. He's wanted his preaching to be kind. Now take that and translate that right into your preaching, because you're a preacher too. Every Christian is a preacher. Is your preaching kind? Are you out on the street, in the workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, wherever? Are you a preacher of gospel kindness? The kind of kindness that draws people in to the gladness of God who is even kinder than you are. This can be true for us because as we're seeing here, we got to grasp this truth Our Savior, among many myriads of other things, has been kind to you. What if, what if he had treated you as your sins deserved? If you can get to the bottom of that question, then you will see the kindness of the Savior, who has been kind to us. We want to be kind because of this. Kindness, the kindness of God, 
is something that we'll have to keep fighting for and unpacking throughout our lives. We're not going to master this, corner it. It's something that's unending, just like the gospel. No one gets the gospel. You don't get it. I don't get it. We never will get it in the sense of get to the end of it. But we can keep making progress in that and making progress in understanding the kindness of God. And I think in part, as we'll see in the last verse this morning, that the kindness of God is magnified here and in many other places on the backdrop of the fallen world and of our own fallen hearts. That's why I said a moment ago, if we get to the bottom of the question, what would it be like if God treated me as my sins deserve, thinking honestly through the scriptures and what the scriptures declare to us about our sin and the law, then you will see his kindness shining on this backdrop, verse 8. There's another angel, a second one. And it followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Part of really understanding the gospel, understanding the good news, is really understanding the bad news of the law, which declares to us the kind of world that we really live in and the kind of world that the gospel has come into and the kind of people to whom it is preached. This certainly is bad news. When you read this verse, you notice that John says that he he, he quotes, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. I don't think this is a literal place of Babylon, but it is a symbol to characterize a, a number of things about the world, the world system, what the world is really like under the curse of sin, a world system of consuming immorality, I think that's why he talks specifically about sexual immorality because it is so captivating to the human heart and mind. It's a way of talking about a whole, a whole life, a whole world that is focused on immorality, that is running across the field as far as they can away from God. People whose hearts are bent toward evil Sometimes we use that language that someone is hell-bent upon accomplishing something. When I hear stuff like that, I like to go to the internet. I love the internet, if you haven't noticed. I Google things 70,000 times a day (laughs) because I want to know, well, where did that come from? It's pretty interesting that hell-bent is actually kind of a play from the 1800s on the idea. It's actually a longer phrase that's hell-bent for leather, And it's the idea of someone riding a horse bareback, whipping it with a leather whip. Imagine the way that horse runs in an erratic, reckless, speedy manner as fast as it can. It's driving the horse, and the horse is in that moment hell-bent for leather, out of control. That's the world into which the gospel has come a world that spiritually is hell-bent and running recklessly away from God. That is what is so amazing about this. Think about even the reference to Babylon. When you hear that, you might think about the Tower of Babel and what that whole scene was all about. In the Old Testament, we read about people who built a tower to reach up into the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. There is just no more anti-theistic way of living than to do that. 
There is nothing else that could possibly be more against the purpose of the world, which is to bring God glory and make his name known than to build a tower to make your own name known. That's the picture. And that's the place that because of the gospel is fallen, fallen. This is the reality of the gospel is that it has brought to us an extravagant alternative to this fallen world. A world that is corrupted, caught in sin, ensnared, unable to escape, running from God. This world is fallen, again, because there is an alternative. This is the kindness of God, that he would take us from a world like this and that he would change us, that his gospel would defeat the world, even the flesh, even the devil, which we already know is defeated, 666, failure upon failure upon failure. But that also means that we want to be faithful because of this kindness and because we recognize the incredible alternative that he's given to us by saving us and securing us, is that we want to be people who are distinct from the world. We talked about this recently in our community group, and it was a helpful conversation to think about. We want to be distinct from the world. That's what the image just in the passages previous to this show that believers in the future will be under incredible tribulation and persecution and difficulty. They are distinct. They are marked out. Everybody knows who they are. That's how they cut them off from buying and selling. That's how they put them to death. They know who they are. Well, we want to be that kind of distinct. We want the world to know who we are for Christ's sake. And therefore, as we come to a close, I want to encourage you with just two other applications, practices, habits of ours that need to become increasing in us, increasing in me. One is certainly personal evangelism. We want to make ourselves as Christians distinct by being faithful in announcing the good news with ultimate, ultimate kindness to people who are fallen in a fallen world just like us and yet who are being given this good news of an eternal gospel, that they might by grace come along as well. That's one way to be distinct. And not simply by living different lives or following some of the rules in the Bible because it makes us look a little bit different, but really going after this opportunity to announce this good news And then second, to really invest, hear this clearly, to really invest in the name of our church. Now, what I do not mean by that is that we want our church to be famous, that we want our church name to be known uh, because of some trivial thing that we do. We don't want that. But we do want to invest in the name of our church so that the name of our church becomes heavy. It has meaning to it. It has strength to it. It has kindness and gladness built into it. That's what we want people to know. But that only happens when we are continually faithful in personal evangelism and faithful in continually talking about our church. Our church is wildly imperfect. But Christ is here. We're trying to make the gospel paramount. And so we want people to know about that. So be talking. Be talking about that. Let people know 
who we are as a people, what we care about, what we're trying to do, though imperfectly, and invite them to hear this good news, to come and join us and and worship with us and fear God with us, and to give him glory. We only want our church to be heavy because we want God to be heavy. These are important tasks. These are heavy things for us to think about doing. But the Lord is up to the task. He is at work in our midst. Of course, this kind of commitment begins by coming to Christ first and foremost. I hope that anyone who's here as a guest or on the live stream could not mistake the truth of the gospel, having heard these words from this text, that we have an ultimate hope of a kind God who saves by grace alone. And he has come into the world for that very purpose to save sinners like us. And he welcomes, he welcomes the world to come in the true offer of salvation. So we pray that any guest that we would have here, anyone who would hear our message as a church, would come to Christ quickly and gladly. And that is our prayer this morning. And then for ourselves, as we continue to worship, we got to take these truths right up into the songs. And we got to take these truths right from the songs into life so that we can live in light of this good news that he has given to us. Please stand with me now so that we can pray and then sing once again. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks because of your mercy and your grace. We give you thanks because you are kind above all else. You are kind, kind, kind. Oh God, forgive us and forgive our world for portraying you as anything other than wildly kind to wildly sinful people. And we pray that this would become an ongoing message of ours, that we would be motivated by the gladness of the gospel to tell of the kindness of our God who has entered our world, understood our need, and brought us himself and his answers to transform us and to save us and to keep us forevermore. Please help us in this. We know that you will. You are strong, you are faithful, and you are kind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.